Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, the songs that we just sang are moving. I think of what we just confessed in the last song of how we adore you above everything. We understand that when we sing, often we're singing what our heart's desire is, not what reality is. And it is our desire to adore you over everything. We get distracted and we lose sight of that. Please forgive us for that. Father, we sang a song right before that. It talked about how that in the good times and bad, you are on your throne. We forget that too, Father. My mind went to many people in this church who are silently suffering right now as a, um, and their, their faith is being tested. Of whether or not you are on your throne in the good times and bad. In this moment, would you please strengthen their faith? Father, there are some that we know of that are battling health, chronic health things like Janine and Jane and others. Father, would you remind them that you are on the throne? There are people who are trying to make very difficult decisions for their life right now, right here in our congregation. Remind them of your sovereignty. There are people that are silently suffering, that they don't know how to communicate what they're going through to others, and I pray that you give them courage to be able to speak with others. Right now, Father, I pray that what we have just sung would minister deeply to our souls. The time that we spend together in your word will encourage us and help us to have a better view of you and better appreciation for who you are. Christ's name, we do pray all these things. Amen. Let's go to the book of Titus, please. Titus, the third chapter. We're going to be finishing this uh, series here uh, that we've been going through on Titus. And um, it's been a short series, only a few messages or so, but uh, uh, about six messages, I think. But it's uh, been a good study for my own soul. And uh, I hope it's been a blessing to you as well. Um, I'm going to read from verse 1 of Titus 3, through the end of the chapter. But verses 9 through 15 will serve as our text uh, this morning. Paul writes to Titus here, who is trying to get a church established in the island of Crete and trying to order it and get it set up. And and he's talked to them about some of the things that Titus should teach and minister to these Christians who have gathered there. They were in the midst of theological confusion. And he says this, Paul to Titus, he says, okay, as you're pastoring this church, here's what you need to do. Remind them, verse 1 of chapter 3, page 998, if it's one of the Bibles you're using from the pews there, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. 
I mentioned last week that after reading that that's what we were, that other than that, we were decent people. You look at that list, it's not a good list. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. That is the word of the living God. You know, one of the the titles you see of this, the, the last couple of sermons about that he's talking about church health here. What is what does a healthy church look like? And I believe that when we look at this text, we can kind of see some of those things. But you know, health comes at a cost. If we want to get in shape or we want to get uh, a more healthy lifestyle, it comes at a cost. It takes goals. It takes intentionality. It takes hard work to be healthy. Uh, some of you know that uh, the last couple of months, uh, Mike and I have been going to a gym, uh, working out uh, about three days a week is where we go. We get up about six in the morning and uh, we head over to the gym and uh, I pick him up and uh, he gets in the car and inevitably we have the same conversation every morning. He looks at me, I look at him and we both say, I don't feel like doing this. <laughs> and then we go to the gym and we get there and the first time I worked out with Mike, I thought, this is a good idea. And then I realized, wait a minute here. This guy is a former NCAA college athletic athlete here. He was, he was, he was on a, a, a diving team for the University of Wyoming. And very quickly here, I realized, man, this guy, uh, at one time, he was in shape, okay? <laughs> I can't boast that. I, I, I mean, I, I've always been a shape. Okay, um, but but you know I thought man th- this guy so so the first time we 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 do some bench presses and things like that we did the same amount I'm like I'm pretty good about myself um, now we put the weights on and he's just cranking through these bench presses things and I'm like struggling and he's being very gracious to me you know he's like oh well, and he's you know, helping me up in the last you know rep or whatever it is and. Uh, uh, I'm like, well, that was, you know, four and a half. And he's like, oh, no, we'll count it five. You know, thanks, Mike. Appreciate that. Um, so I've, I've decided I need a new workout partner. <laughs> and so I, got, I took a picture of my new workout partner. That's going to be helpful to me. <laughs> um, 
I think, I think I, this, this is my speed here. Um, I really appreciate it. Now, you know, you can't go to the gym with no goals or plans. You can't just go there. And that's one thing I appreciate about Mike. He has a friend that's very sadistic and uh, came up with a plan for us. And, and Mike's keeping us on this plan and, and doing this, and he's trying to be creative and gracious to me as, as with all my shortcomings. But you have to have goals. You have to have a plan. If, you're not, if you don't, nothing, uh, it's not going to do much good just going to the gym just to show up there. You know, it's that way also with the health of the church. There are specific goals or targets that I think that we should aim for that Titus here gives us through Paul's instruction here. That in order to maintain and that we need to maintain in order to have uh, or contribute to the health of this church. And this should be all of us here. This isn't just the leaders. This is all of us that we have a part in this church. And I, I was just meeting with the, uh, a group of individuals who would like to join the church. And uh, we met in the hour before this. And, and one of the things we talked about was the responsibility that all of us have as members of the church. And, and what are these to promote unity and peace and, and, and the idea of, of, of health for the church? And so there's three things I just want to point out quickly uh, this morning here from this text here of how I believe what Paul was trying to communicate to Titus of what the emphasis should be. And what, what should we aim for? And, and, and I believe this will help us in our congregation here. First is this, if, if, if our church, if, if Memorial Baptist Church is going to be a healthy church, we must aim for clarity. We must aim for clarity. In verse 9, he says this, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. First of all, we must maintain clarity about what is helpful to talk about. Some people are, are so preoccupied with finer points of theology that are, have been debated for years and years and years and years, and that we're, we're never going to settle here. And, you know, some of the things about some of the end times things and, and, and things like that, we're not talking about crucial issues here. We're not talking about whether or not the Bible is the word of God. We're not talking about whether or not Jesus is God. We're not talking about the virgin birth here. We're not talking about whether or not Jesus is coming back for us. All these things we have to be agreed on. But I think all of us understand that at some points of, of, of theology, there are things that we're just going to have to disagree on. And that's okay. I believe that's, that's by design to teach us to get along with one another. But some people are so preoccupied with the, just a small element of theology or the Bible that then that's the only thing they can talk about. You know, when I was going through a theological shift in my own life, I, uh, uh, a friend of mine was helping me through this. It started in college and things. I, I, when I grew up, the first time, never forget, the first time I heard the word Calvinism, okay, and some of you are like, oh, I knew he was going there. Okay, all right. So I, the first time I heard it, I was in high school. I'd never heard of it before. And this is how it was explained to me. I said, what's Calvinism? They said, well, it just means that God chooses some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. No, well, I don't agree with that. And that is an oversimplification of the doctrine, just so you know. Uh, it's not an accurate representation of it. Uh, but anyway, so the point is this, is that uh, I thought, well, no, that can't be true. And so throughout college, uh, I argued vehemently against Calvinism, what's known as Calvinism, but other people refer to as the doctrines of grace. Well, uh, then I began to read uh, other books. I began to realize that, no, that wasn't an accurate interpretation of it. And so over time, my views began to change on this a little bit. And the point is that the sermon isn't to, to, to articulate whether or not you should be Calvinist or not. That's a whole other discussion. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, is that I began to have a shift in this. So I remember talking to my friend about it, but I, I was getting really passionate about it. 
And my friend sat me down and he said, look, you know, when people go through theological shifts like this, and when they go through new points of theology or something really grabs their case, there's really three stages that they go through. I said, okay, what are these three stages? He says, first of all, it's the rage stage. I said, okay, what's that? He says, you're angry that no one ever taught you this before, and you feel like you've been lied to your entire life. And so you're just kind of ticked off at the world about this. And anyone else who's teaching in every sermon you listen to, if they don't mention this pet doctrine that you're thinking of, you're angry about it because they're duping other people as well. That's the rage stage. Yeah, I'm pretty much there, you know. And so he's like, okay. So the second stage is called the cage stage. So what's the cage stage? He says the cage stage is, this is the only topic you can talk about. And so the best thing for the safety of yourself and everyone else is to be locked into a cage for a while. Okay? (laughs) Putting you in a cage, you're you're not going to cause any damage. It's the only topic you can talk about. I mean, you could be talking about Christmas, and it's like, you know, yeah, yeah, Christmas is coming up. Well, yeah, it's because God ordained it to be that way. Okay, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, that's right. You know, from the foundations of the earth. He wanted it to be this way, right? You know, and it's like the only topic you can talk about is this. I said, oh, okay, yeah. I, I don't want to be there. I don't like being in cages, but okay. And I said, what's the last stage? He says, last stage is called the sage stage. You can have an intelligent conversation about it, but it doesn't really preoccupy yourself. I mean, it's, it's okay. You can talk about it. You can debate it if people want to debate it. You're willing to have a debate if they'd like to, but you know what, there's other things to spend time with as well. I said, I want to get there. And you know, that's where we need to be on some of these matters. But you see, here what was happening is that probably in this church here, there's a lot of theological confusion here. And we see this was happening about these these difficulty and disagreements about the law. We saw in chapter 1. Look over in chapter 1 and verse 10. This is when he's describing the church there. Paul's describing the Titus. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. He's talking about Judaizers there. He says, They must be silent since they are upsetting whole households by teaching for shameful gain that what they ought not to teach. When the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That gets me every time I read that. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. They may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. So obviously what was happening here is that there was some going back into Jewish teaching, maybe arguing about the law and keeping the law and dietary restrictions and things like that that was probably being taught. And saying in order to be a follower of Christ, you must keep this law here in, in what Paul has been arguing. He's saying, no, that's what Jesus set us free from. He fulfilled the law. He don't, we don't need that anymore. But there's these arguments, these theological things and, and debates and things like that. And again, I'm not saying, I, I, I don't want to overstate my point here. I'm not saying it's not important to have sound doctrine because the book is about that. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, For if you teach what course with sound doctrine. So, of course, we're talking about sound doctrine here. But we have to agree that there's finer points that just aren't helpful. Or there's conversations that just aren't helpful. And if we're going to c- contribute to the health of the church... We need to be wise with how we have those conversations. Paul's advice is to avoid them. Just avoid them. It's not helpful because it's unprofitable and worthless. There's some things that it's lawful for us to do or to talk about or whatever, but it's not helpful. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. Not all things are healthy. 
I think that it takes wisdom for us to be able to say, okay, this isn't going to help us in our church right now. And so we need to be cautious. We need to have clarity of what's most important things to talk about. A couple of verses I wanted to share with you. I put them on the screen, I think. It was First Timothy chapter 1. Uh, go ahead and turn there, actually. Just a page over to your left. First Timothy chapter 3. These next ones are going to be from Timothy, which is kind of a companion book to Titus. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. So if you ever see that designation, it's talking about those three books of the Bible, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, uh, because those are letters Paul wrote to pastors about how to uh, pastor a church. So First Peter chapter 1 in verse 3, it says this. It says, As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either way, either what they are saying or the things of which they make confident assertions. So sometimes people get really dogmatic about something that historians and theologians have argued about for years and years and years. It's just not healthy to be so dogmatic about something like that because that, it creates division. Because what it does is it's saying, if you don't hold this position, then you're not as mature as I am. We need to be cautious with these conversations. Again, have debates. If you want a theological debate, I love to debate theology and discuss what is known as speculative theology. It's fine. It's okay to have those things. As long as we understand that it is that, speculative theology, meaning we really can't have a full answer to that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Again, I like the, the balance here of, yes, we're upholding sound doctrine. We need to fight for theological truth of what matters. But we need to understand that not everything falls into that category. There are gradients of what is important. Verse 3 of chapter 6, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Okay, tell us what you really feel, Paul. He has, what is, look how he describes them. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. What happens? And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth and imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So here we have it again. Paul's saying, be cautious with what we're talking about here. Be cautious with what preoccupies your mind in your conversations. Finally, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Very succinctly, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So sometimes a healthy church is just going to say, you know what, it's not worth fighting this battle for. It's not worth going to the mat about this point here. And again, you say, well, how do we know what's important and which isn't? I believe this is one of the reasons why creeds and confessions are very important to the, the theological framework of a church. What is crucial to the faith here? We can go through that. What is crucial to our following of Jesus Christ? But if we're getting into this point where we're just loving to debate, it's actually very uh, harmful to a church. 
And it breeds even false teaching, actually. Because when we get so dogmatic about something that is not as clear in Scripture, we tend to overstate our points. We tend to argue past the other person, thereby creating even a false teaching. And so the nature of conversations that Paul was talking about here was probably more severe than just simple disagreements about finer points of theology. I want to be clear on that. What he's talking about here is probably more on the edge of false teaching than just disagreeing over some nuanced points of theology. I want to be honest about that. But the application, I believe, is still relevant for us. But we should be very cautious about that. Have those discussions, but be, be wise about them. You see that the New Testament describes false teaching, though. It's something we need to really avoid. Look how it, it describes it. I just put these on the screen so you can see that. According to the New Testament, false teaching unsettles the soul. It shipwrecks faith, leads to blasphemy. It leads to the, uh, the ruin of the hearers. That should be leads, not lees, to the ruin of the hearers, my fault. It produces ungodliness. It spreads like gangrene. And so this is the reason why we need to be cautious about promoting false teaching in any sorts. And this is the reason why we, we got to go back to the Scriptures all the time, going being rooted in the Scriptures here. So we need to be, maintain clarity about what is, what is healthy to talk about in our church. If we only have so much time to spend with each other, what is, what is most beneficial uh, in those conversations? I believe this is what Paul is talking about here. But also we need to maintain clarity on who is helpful to be around. Look at verse 10, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Seems pretty harsh. Seems pretty harsh to say, okay, have nothing more to do with this person because we don't agree. Well, the point is it's a little bit different. This is a person who is so uh, divisive in their personality and their pursuits that he is, he is literally causing disruption in the church. He or she is doing this. Warn them, admonish them is what the word actually means there. Tell them, hey, this is dangerous to you. Remember when I was in Rhode Island as a pastor out there, uh, we had a man in our church that uh, began to follow the teachings of Harold Camping. I don't know if that name means anything to you, but uh, a few years ago, I think the last one was in 2012, where he predicted the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, and he also was teaching that we don't need the established church anymore. And so he was a false teacher. And uh, at this time, which was before 2012, uh, probably about 2005 or so, uh, 2004, 2005, he was, this person in our church was following his teachings and trying to spread it to the church. And it was becoming a divisive issue. And so as leaders, we met with this person multiple times. I had constant uh, communication with this person. I personally did uh, through email, face-to-face meetings, whatever it was. And he was very dogmatic in his teaching and wanted to keep spreading it. And so after a couple meetings of getting together with me and other individuals, we had to remove him from the church because, because of this right here, because it was dangerous, because it, it, was, it was contrary to the scriptures. And so we need to have a, 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 such a, a love for Christ and truth that we need to make sure that we are, are rooting out any false teaching there. This is what, what Paul is telling Titus to do there. So when he, who is helpful to be around? Notice how he describes it. He says this person is warped. The way this word is written is, is interesting. It's, it's written in such a way that means that there's a, the, it, 
the, the action was completed in the past, but the effects of it are still happening today. So it'd be kind of like if we say, you know, if someone said to you, hey, um, are you hungry? Can I get you something to eat? And then you say, no, I already ate. Well, what are you saying there? You said, well, I did something in the past. But of course, we've all eaten in the past. Okay, we've all had a meal in the past. But what you're saying by saying that is that, but the effects of me eating in the past are still carrying to to this present moment. So I don't need any more food. That's kind of how it's written. So it says he's warped. In the past, he's, he's, he's so uh, uh, blinded himself to the truth that it's carrying effects even into his conversations today. And it's written in a passive sense, and so, uh, which means the action was, was put on him. And so the idea is probably satanic involvement there, of being led astray, being blinded. And so here we have that this person, how Paul describes him, says he's warped, and he is constantly, and he is, this is present tense, sinning. By doing this, he's self-condemned. So we need to warn and then remove people. We talked about this in the adult discipleship hour with the people who are going to be joining church. We talked about church discipline here. There's a few verses, passages. I'm not going to turn to these. We can put those on the screen, though, of Second Thessalonians 3.14, Matthew 18, and 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. If you want to study this issue some more, go ahead and, and look at these references because you'll, you'll see how that this is biblical in addition to this here of that we need to make sure that we're careful who is part of our church. And again, I, I don't want to overstate this. I don't want to overstate this to the point of saying that we're unwelcoming or we don't, we don't want people who disagree with us. Actually, I'm very comfortable with people who disagree with me. I think it's helpful to a church to have a variety of opinions, but only on certain matters. When it comes to what the scriptures teach, we have to be agreed on that as far as the core values of who Jesus is, who God is. What does the Bible say about our souls? What does the Bible say about our need of salvation, et cetera, et cetera? We need to maintain clarity on these issues. But also, if, if we're going to be a healthy church, we must aim for continuity. So there's got to be clarity about what, what is helpful for us to talk about and, what, and how to spend our time and, and who to have part of our church. Who, what, what, what is, what is going to be most helpful to us? And as people who follow after Christ and who are submitted to Christ and who are, are willing to discuss these things, there also has to be some continuity. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I decide to spend the winter there. Paul was writing. Uh, we don't know exactly where he was writing from. Some people think Ephesus. Some people think Rome. We're, we're not exactly sure where he was writing this letter from, but he was writing this letter to Titus, most likely. Zenus and Apollos, who are mentioned in verse 13, are the ones who brought the letter to him. And so that's how the letter got to Crete. And uh, Paul was on his way to get to Nicopolis uh, to spend the winter there. And he wasn't there yet, but that's where he was going. And so what he was doing is he said, hey, look, I'm going to send someone for you. I'm going to send either uh, Artemis or Tychicus. I haven't decided which one yet, but I'm going to send one of those guys to relieve you of your duties. And then from there, you need to come and meet me in Nicopolis because we have some, some work to do up there. And so this idea of continuity struck me as I was reading this is that Titus was to stay there. He was to keep working there until his replacement came. He was to keep laboring for Jesus on this island there, fulfilling uh, uh, the, the instructions that Paul was giving him until the replacement came. And so this means that we serve until we can turn it over. 
Some of us are involved in ministries in the church here, and we need to serve in such a way until we can turn it over. Paul was constantly training other leaders to carry on the work that he started. And we can only assume that Titus was doing the exact same thing here in this church at Crete. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, we need to be a church that manages transitions well. Because often what happens is that one person's going hard and serving hard, and then what happens is that then they get tired, and then it drops. There's nowhere there to pick that up again. We need to manage transitions well. The usual way of retirement from ministry, it goes like this. Hey, um, I prayed about this, and I'm done. And that's it. Okay, thanks. And But there's no replacement plan. I believe that a healthy church is always constantly trying to work themselves out of a job in, in, in bringing up replacements for their own work. So the entire time we serve, we should be looking to recruit others and work ourselves out of a job. And I think that that's the idea here is that saying, stay there, keep doing this until I send reinforcements, until I send someone to take your place, then, you can, then you're released and you can move on to something else. And so if you're involved in the ministry here, that's awesome, that's great. But be looking to involve others in that ministry. Be looking to bring people alongside you and say, hey, you know what, I, I, maybe one day I'm going to turn this over to you or, or I'm going to uh, need your help on this. And, and, and you know, the best way to get people involved is not by announcements on Sunday morning. No offense to those who give announcements, but it, that's the worst way to get people involved because it just doesn't produce work. It doesn't produce results. You know what the best way to get people involved is? Personal invitation. They say, hey, I'm serving in this ministry here, and it is awesome. I want you to share this with me. Be looking for people that you can turn things over to, that you can take ministries and turn them over to. That was something that a friend of mine taught me, and he gave me a job to do in the ministry that where we're at, and, and it wasn't anything particular that I was really interested in, in doing, but it was a need that had to be done, and so I did it, and I was serving that capacity. And then he said, um, okay, you're getting it organized, and I appreciate that, Jeremy. He says, but you're missing something. I said, what am I missing? He says, you don't have a replacement. I said, well, you're trying to get rid of me already? He says, no, you're doing a great job, but I don't want you doing that for the rest of your life. You've got to find a replacement for you. It was really helpful to me. Always find a replacement. So this means we serve until we can turn it over. So we aim for continuity here. But it also means that we have to train others because we can't just expect people to pop up there. We have to train them. And this is what we saw in Titus chapter 2. Remember, older men are to be sober-minded. And it goes on and talks about in chapter 2 there of how older are to teach younger and to train up others. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 2. And what we see here, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the pattern that we see here. When you learn something, you pass it on. When you learn something, you turn it on to the next generation or you, you, you train up other people as well. Remember a few weeks ago, I showed you something. Put it on the screen. Remember this from a few weeks ago? Talk about how every person should be involved in a discipleship relationship. So you have a blank, your name, and another blank. So someone should be ministering to you. Someone should be discipling you. Someone should be pouring their life into you. And then you should be pouring into someone else. So who is that? If I were to put this on a piece of paper and pass it out to everyone and say, okay, fill in the blanks, what names would you write down? 
What name is, 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 do you constantly go to or that they are pouring into you? And, and who is it that you're intentionally saying, okay, I'm going to try to help this person. I'm going to, I'm going to try to pass this on. I'm going to try to, to minister to this person. Who is that? See, this is a healthy church when a church does this. Healthy church is one who there's constant turning things over and training up other people. We have to, we have to have this next generation of servants carry the baton. I put a picture on the screen here of, of a, a baton relay race. Now, I, I was a good Baptist kid. I grew up in Iwana. And um, I remember going to the Iwana Olympics. And I remember we would train for weeks to go to the Olympics. And one of the races that we had to do was the relay race. And I was part of that. Um, I, I, I could run at that point in my life. And, um, and so I would, I would run. And, and I was pretty fast. There was only one other kid in all Iwana who was faster than me, Aaron Martin. <clears throat> but anyway, he, I'm going to look him up on Facebook. I am. But, um, you know, we, we would run and we would do this relay. And I remember the coach coaching us on this and you know the first time you do this how do kids normally do this they stand at the line and they wait for the runner to come and then they take the baton then they turn to start running that's right it, so the coach would say no 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 you need to you need to start running have your hand out just like this and and then so you start doing it, so the kids are doing this thing he's like no 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 you look at the target you go straight and you just run and let, let the other person smack it in your hand and you had to do it before you cross the line Okay, so we practice this and practice this and practice this and practice this. We practice more on the baton handoff than running the race. That's what we practiced over and over and over again. Got to the Olympics, guess what happened? We won because we had those transitions down. We knew I, we didn't have to look. We could just start, we were ready to go and just start running. Once the coach told us to go, we'd start running. And then the person behind would smack that baton in our hand and we would just go full bore because we had already had that running start. There wasn't an awkward transition there. You know, this is exactly, I believe, how ministry should be. It has this idea of eyes forward on Christ looking to follow Christ. Both need to be running. Both need to be in motion. This isn't a, a stand there, then a baton kind of gets chucked at you, and you're like, oh yeah, maybe I'll do something with this, and then you start running. No, it's in motion, and it's a firm handoff. I believe this captures ministry transition very well. Some of you are involved in ministry, and you're not going to be able to always do this. I get this. There's times where you need to take seasons of break and all this stuff. I get that. But train up other people. You invite other people to come alongside you. And if you're here and listening, you're saying, well, yeah, I, I don't really have that problem because I'm not really involved in any ministry. You know the application for you then. Start running. Come alongside someone. Say, hey, wh- what can I do to help here? You know, do, 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 does I want to need more help? Does, does children's ministry need more help? Does, does the, the, you know, this team need that? Whatever the case may be. Get into the race. Have firm handoffs. Help each other out with this because we need to be training other people. You know, it's been said that God is the God of three generations. Over and over again, you would see in the Old Testament, he would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations. Now, of course, he was a God of more than those generations. But the point is, is that 
when we're followers of Christ, we should be almost obsessed with turning that faith over to the next generation. We don't always do that well. We don't impart our faith to the next generation very well. I, I, I was, my, before the service, I was standing up here, I was getting my microphone on, and uh, four or five middle school, maybe junior high, middle school, junior high, young boys were standing here and talking. And I was talking with them a little bit and, you know, talking about normal stuff like paper airplanes and things like that. And my thought, right, uh, my thought was, uh, wait a minute here. This is the next generation. This is it right here. And then I got scared, okay, because uh, I know Josiah. Um, but as he slinks down, I love you, buddy. Um, now in all seriousness, my heart's actually not scared at all. It's like, good. We've got to train these people. We got to invest in these people. We got to invest in the next generation and, and pass this on. How are we doing with that? How how, how are we doing with with rise, with, with training and, and getting the next generation to keep going? I mean, this church is 161 years old. We've had a lot of generations come through here, but that doesn't mean that we're always going to do well at this. And I would argue that we haven't always done well. We need to have intentional, this is something we've got to aim for, for the health of this church, that we transition well. And we pass on the baton to other people. You know, I felt when I came here, uh, almost three years ago now, that I, I kind of, and I used this as an illustration at the time, but I felt like a baton was being passed to me. I'm the 36th pastor of this church, okay? Number 36. Lucky number, right? So there's been a lot of pastors before me. Pat, my predecessor, Craig, well-loved, did a great job in so many ways. But I felt like, okay, in, my, in this role, the baton's being passed to me, and I need to run, I need to run hard, and don't drop the baton. I think about that often. But that's as a pastor. What about as a church member? You have the same baton being passed to you. You have the same responsibilities to run hard after Christ and follow Christ and pursue Christ and then pass that on to the next generation. Well, who are you doing that for? Who are, you, who, are you intentionally, who are you intentionally passing it on to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Throughout the Old Testament, God reminded the Israelites to teach their children well because um, we are one generation away from extinction. Pass it on. Now, part of the problem is, and I'll say this before we get into our third and final point, part of the problem is that growth is stunted when the supplement becomes primary. Okay? Growth is, is stunted when the supplement becomes primary. What do I mean by this? Okay, so you got vitamins and things up there. Now, if, if I expect to be healthy and fit by taking vitamins along with my double quarter pounder with cheese meal from McDonald's, is it going to work? No. Are the vitamins good? Yes. But if I'm not doing the things that I should be doing on the other end, the supplement's not going to do 
what, what the primary should be doing. Now, what do I mean by this? What I mean by this is that the church is actually the supplement here. Okay? The home is primary here. And so Awana, children's church, youth groups, et cetera, et cetera, those are designed to be supplemental towards the Christian home, not primary. But the problem is, is that when families say, no, this is going to be the primary instruction of our children, growth is stunted. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. Where it was, well, they go to church, they go to children's church or a youth group or wherever the case may be. And so, therefore, they're going to turn out godly. And guess what? It rarely happens. Because the home needs to be primary. You know where the primary one, the primary is given in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 when it says, Fathers, when it talks about dads teaching and admonishing their children. So dads, this is you. This is on you. This is on me as a dad. We are the primary uh, uh, caregiver for spiritual health for our families and for our children. Step up to the plate. Don't, don't expect the supplementary to be the primary. Come to the church and get supplemental things. Get help. Get, get uh, uh, ideas and things like that. But you've got to be leaders in your home. You say, well, unfortunately, dad's not home. Or my dad, not a Christian. What about then? Well, you know, the Bible has a way of answering those things too. To Timothy, when Paul was writing to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 1.5, he said that Timothy's situation was such that Timothy's faith was given to his, his mother and his grandmother. We had Lois and Eunice there that had ministered to Timothy. And so it was parents. It was still the home. Dad should take primary, but if dad's not there, which Timothy's father was either dead or not a believer, it became the mom and the grandmother's responsibility to help. See, the home has to be primary here. But part of the problem is is that we we want to farm it out. Particularly dads want to do this. We can't do that, guys. Please don't do that. Because it stunts growth and we're not going to train the next generation. We're not going to pass on what we need to pass on to others. Something we need to aim for. Let me just mention this, and we'll be done here. If we're going to be a healthy church, we must aim for charity or care, we could say. In verse 13, he says, Do this to, spend, to, to speed, excuse me, Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, seeing they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Once more, he mentions good works in this book. He mentions it often. And this is probably, he's saying, provide aid in in the needs for the letter bearers of Zenos and Apollos. He says, send them on their way that they're lacking nothing. Do good works. Care for each other. Show charity to one another is what he's saying here. And care often requires a sacrificial effort. You see, it says, see if they lack nothing. That requires sacrifice. That requires him thinking of what do they actually need and them having this, the, and meeting those needs so they lack nothing. It takes sacrifice. It also takes a studious effort. It says that they may learn, in verse 14, to devote themselves to good works. This isn't natural for us to think of the needs of other people. It's not a natural thing for us to do. We have to learn to do that. And then it requires swift effort so as to help cases of urgent need. Sometimes we just have to spring into action and provide care for each other. 
And this was the case with Apollos and Zenos here. What he was telling Titus, what Paul was telling Titus, he says, make sure their needs are met. He says, but don't feel like you have to do it alone. The whole church should be involved in this, of meeting their needs. So they must learn to do that. So we have this idea of this aiming for care and charity. And let me just say that that, if, if our church is going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church that shows compassion and care and charity towards others. That should be our, our knee-jerk reaction. Is how can we help? How can we show care? How can we meet these needs right now? And it's always risky. It's always risky showing care because we might get taken advantage of. Let me actually change that. We will get taken advantage of. It's going to happen. But that doesn't change the fact of what God has called us to do in the name of Jesus. It was pretty risky for Jesus to go to the cross. It's pretty risky for God to save us from our sins. But he did it because of love. And that's what we need to have here. So three thoughts here and how we can be a healthy church. We have to aim for clarity. What is it that should occupy our time? Let's be very clear on what is most important and what is most beneficial for that. Let's be clear on who should be a part of this church. Let's be very clear about that. Let's make sure that we have this continuity where we're we're passing and we're serving until we can turn it over to someone else and we're training other people. And there's charity or care for one another. These are things that are targets that we must aim for if we're going to be a healthy church here in this community. So the question I just want to ask is this. You can think about this. Because we're part of the church here. And all of us have some effect on the health of this church. The question is, what effect are you having on the health of this church? Think about that. What effect are you having on the health of this church? Are you helping it get stronger and more healthy, or are you not? It's all of our responsibilities as part of this church to have a positive effect on the health of this church. Let's pray to God. Father, I do pray that we would have a positive effect in the health of our church here. I pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing. I pray that we would be committed to turning over our faith and to the next generation or training the next generation up and others around us. May that consume us. I pray that all of us would take an active role in that. I pray that we would um, we would see our church continue to grow in its health and that we would be a church that honors you. Help us be devoted to good works, as we're told in the book of Titus. I pray that we would be um, always looking out for our neighbors at the Good Samaritan. When we look at the theme of Scripture, it's, do good works. One of the themes, I should say, is do good works, not for our own sake, but like Matthew chapter 5 says, so that when people see our good works, they will glorify God. Not us, but glorify God who is in heaven. Because truly it's a mark of a, a transformed person when they're devoted to showing care for other people. Because naturally we're selfish. and We realize that. So help us to show our transformation by doing good for others, all for your name's sake and for your glory. And help us to have those pure motives. In Christ's name we do pray.